Can you all hear me all right? All right. Now, if, I'm, if I speak right here, can you hear me a little bit? You can hear me all right? Because, you know, sometimes I just want to whisper. No? Okay. All right, I'll try not to whisper, but uh, you need to hear me. So if you have problems hearing me, let me know. Okay, so that I can let them know and they can bring it up. All right, um, I want to make a quick announcement here uh, for an event that's going to be happening in November. <clears throat> it's only about a month away now, about a month and a weekend away. And um, it is a, uh, it's really going to be a, a conference called White is the Gate. White is the Gate. Now, of course, that comes from one of the Gospels or actually a couple of the Gospels where Jesus talks about uh, narrow is the gate that leads to salvation, but wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the sub-theme for this particular conference is standing fast in the last days. And uh, the wide is the gate is actually a, a nationwide conference that is uh, uh, promoted by some very uh, long-standing Christians uh, in, in the church. Uh, one who was here a couple of years ago, uh, Warren Smith, uh, and uh, Carol Matriciana, who uh, has been around since the Jesus Movement days. Some of you may have seen a, a video that she did a number of years ago with Pastor Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And it was on Halloween and, and the, you know, the, the, the problems that, that uh, there are in Halloween uh, celebrations, stuff like that. Very, very good and biblical uh, video. So she's, she's the one that makes all these films. And uh, White is a Gate is really a, a documentary. It's up to three Actually, four videos now. The, uh, the third White is the Gate series is coming out soon. What it is, is, is an exposure of, of the dangers of the New Age movement that have crept into the church. And uh, things that uh, some churches are allowing to have happen in their, in their particular uh, buildings and congregations today. For example, Christian yoga. Christian yoga, by the way, is, is, a, is an oxymoron. You can't have Christian and yoga to mix, you know, it just doesn't mix. It's not supposed to anyway. But people have kind of tried to make it mix. Well, it doesn't mix because yoga is a part of a, an Eastern religion. And uh, these, this is just one thing out of many. Uh, one, of the, one of the major issues that is being dealt with today is in what is called the emerging church. I've talked about it quite a bit. We've even had a conference, as I said, a couple of years ago with Warren Smith here. And, uh, and then also another person named Ray Youngen who's going to be coming. So we're going to have these people coming for this conference. It's going to be November the 8th, 9th and 10th. That's a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We're going to have a Sunday evening meeting uh, so we can give them as much time as possible to cover a lot of ground. Because, again, uh, this, this has to do with, with a lot of things that are happening today. For example, I believe it is um, uh, one, one issue. Um, I lost my train of thought. Let me, let me bring it back. <laughs> uh, something called contemplative prayer. And a lot of churches are doing this contemplative prayer thing, a practice of how to pray and how to breathe and all of these things. Listen, man, just pray. You know, just get yourself into the Bible and into the Word of God on your knees and start praying. 
But all of these things are, are, are methods and, and, and exercises into things that are connected to issues coming out of the New Age movement, which really has a very Eastern basis to them. So that, that is, it's really been on my heart that we get a real good understanding about this. There's one more issue, and it's something that may, you know, you don't have to say anything about it when I mention it, but there's a book out that a lot of people are saying, oh, this is one of the great, great books today. It's called Jesus Calling, I believe. I think that's what it's called. And it is a problem because it is, for the most part, unbiblical. So uh, we're going to deal with that in, in about a month. So, uh, you know, again, if, if, so, if this is something that you've, you've gotten, well, come and listen about why it is not something that we should be focusing our attention upon. So that and a hundred other, a thousand other things, hopefully we can, we can wrestle it into one good uh, conference to encourage your hearts that we need to be wise in these last days in the things that we're doing in the church and how we're encouraging people to come to Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation and not all kinds of other things to add on to it. That's part of the problem with the cults today, non-Christian cults. So uh, this, this has already seeped in greatly into the church, and I, you know, I want to make sure that we are aware of what they are. We have some very good speakers coming for this very, uh, this very thing, and I don't want anybody to miss it. So keep, uh, keep those dates in mind, November the 8th through the 10th. Again, a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. All right, let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 12 now. Moving slowly but surely through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. Now, I know it says verses 1 through 5. Uh, earlier, before I, I finished everything up, I, I changed it from verses 1 through 6. And so it's 1 through 5. But tonight we're only going to do one through four. So I don't know how that all works out, but it's, 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 it's okay because we're going to touch on five. We need to touch on five to understand verses one through four. And then verse six actually is really another section. So when we get next, next week, we'll be doing that. But here we are in Revelation chapter 12. And, uh, now we are at the, at this parentheses in, in our, in our study because what's parenthetical here is that We've already been told about the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now remember that at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, that is going to bring in the seven bold judgments or the vile judgments, depending on what translation you have. But it's, they're like bowls that are pouring out judgments. And these primarily are being done during the last half of the seven-year period of tribulation. So in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, uh, are these things going to be taking place? Remember that the two witnesses that we looked at as, as being possibly, of course, Elijah and uh, Moses, uh, are, are on the earth through, throughout the first half of the tribulation. So at, their, at, at the end of uh, that first three and a half years is when they are killed, and then for three and a half days their bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem, but then after three and a half days uh, they arise, uh, they resurrect, and then they're caught up and they're taken up into heaven. And uh, John now is, is really just showing us some details leading us into our understanding of the last half of the tribulation. 
period. So in verse 1 it says now, a great sign. And by the way, this chapter can be called the, the great chapter. Because the word great is going to be used a few times. And then from chapters 12, 13, and 14, we'll see again the greatness of these things. Now greatness, not so much great as good great, but great in the sense of size. Understand that. So this is a great sign. As a matter of fact, the word sign in the Greek is semeon, and the word great is the word mega. I think you've all heard it like a mega, mega store or a mega church or mega something great, okay? Something big. So this is a big sign. So there is now a great sign that appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of twelve stars. Now some of you may have seen that picture somewhere, right? Okay, don't let that picture get in the way. You'll know what I mean in a moment. And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great, there's the word great again, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's quite a graphic picture, isn't it? Very disturbing, as a matter of fact. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. I think we might know who that is. Yes? I think we, we know who that is. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 Days. Interesting. That sounds like three and a half years to me. How that keeps popping up in our study. We need to understand something of the role that Israel plays in the last days because it is a major role. In Bible prophecy, Israel plays a major role role, and I'm not talking about the church, because there are those people today who believe that the church has replaced Israel, that God no longer really cares about Israel, does anything about Israel, the nation that's called Israel is really not anything in uh, what's going on any longer. That's the, the thinking of what is called replacement theology, or churches that believe that much of Bible prophecy has already, part, has already taken place, and therefore Israel has no part. No, no, no. There is an Israel. And much blood was shed for them to be back in their homeland today. And since 1948, as the state of Israel, state of Israel is born... You can't see it in very little letters. It says uh, where it it describes the date and and the place. Jerusalem, Monday, May 14th, 1948. The day that the United Nations 
by one vote declared that Israel was indeed now a nation or a state. So they play a role. And this chapter helps us to understand that. I was reading earlier today in preparation as well, just my own heart and my own study, out of Ezekiel chapter 34. You can read that if you want later. But Ezekiel 34 speaks about God restoring the nation of Israel. Now, if you go through the book of Ezekiel, you realize that, that he's actually speaking of that from throughout most of that particular book. Especially chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. You know, uh, the, the restoration of Israel is really clear. But there's some clear statements being made there in chapter 34 that you cannot deny that Israel in the land is the Israel that God is restoring. And we'll, we'll see this as we go along. I don't want to spend too much time. So let's understand this. The history of mankind is beset with a myriad of attempts by various races of people to exterminate many other groups of people. I think we're aware of that, aren't we? When one nation becomes strong, you know, down through the history of, 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 of mankind, sometimes they go in and they wipe out another people. But they keep a few for slaves and whatnot. You know, that, that's a story down through the history of man. Now, racial and religious hatred has stirred and stimulated unimaginable w- wickedness throughout these ages. And when history is studied from the perspective of these all too frequent atrocities, one particular group of people emerges as a virtually constant target for hatred and violence. And that group of people, if you haven't already guessed, are the Jews. The physical descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, some have wondered whether it's just a coincidence or or possibly a conspiracy that the Jewish people have always faced and are yet facing extermination. But the fact is this. The fact is this. The Scriptures have actually prophesied it. The Scriptures have actually prophesied this. Listen to what Moses declared in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 64 through 67. He said, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples. Now remember, this is in the time of Moses. Not in the time of the prophets, per se, but in the time of Moses. In the time after the patriarchs. In the time of the Exodus. And after the Exodus. It says, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor neither you nor your fathers have known wood and stone. They were never to know wood and stone as their gods because they had one God already. Why would they be scattered? Many times it was because they began to worship the wood and the stone. But then in verse 65 it says, And among those nations you shall find no rest. Oh, they would settle in. They would settle and, and, you know, make themselves very prominent sometimes very wealthy and all, but they would find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes and anguish of soul. 
in the times of their uh, of their being uh, uh, taken into captivity, of their times of being scattered and dispersed among the nations, there was anguish of soul. And even in their prosperity, you could talk to a, a, an older Jewish person and, and they would tell you the desire to just go back to Israel. To go back, not so much Israel, but to the land, which is Israel. But they would say, to the land. To the land. Verse 66, your life shall hang in, in doubt before you. Listen, look, look at this. Think about this in 1939. Think about this in the time of the Holocaust. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. You're not comfortable in either time. You don't know what's around the corner. Who is coming after you? Because of the fear, notice. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. Isn't that telling of a people who have suffered so much and lost so much of their own families? and loved ones to the hatred of people. Our text this evening reveals that the attempted extermination of the Jewish people throughout the centuries is indeed a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy, but it is a satanic conspiracy. It is a satanic conspiracy that underscores and it gives emphasis to all of human history. Yes, all of human history. And the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that the Savior and Sovereign of the world, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, came through the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ came through the nation of Israel and is coming again to the nation of Israel. Folks, this is quite important. This is, as I said, the bottom line. I'm not real big into cliches, but this is the bottom line. Jesus came through the nation of Israel, and He's coming again to the nation of Israel. There is no doubt from the Scriptures that this is what's going to happen. And so we will see Satan's continual and continuing efforts to interfere with God's plan for the ages by attempting to exterminate the Jews. Now think about it this way as well. For a period of time, he sought to exterminate the Jews because he knew that the Messiah was going to come through the Jews. Messiah came, and he came to die and to shed his blood for those who would believe in him and save them who would follow him and and of course again would trust in him, believe in him and, and we would be saved but then why is he still trying to exterminate the Jews because they still have a purpose in God's plan 
You see, we can't erase them now just because, okay, Messiah came. See, this is the problem with, with all of these different theologies, replacement theology and, and, and amillennial theology and all kinds of other theologies that throw Israel out the window when it comes to Bible prophecy. We're seeing that Jesus came through the nation and he's coming again to the nation. And so as we move into chapter 12 of Revelation, we continue, as I said, in this parenthetical portion before the pouring forth of the bold judgments, which proceed from the blasting of the seventh trumpet, where John is filling in some of the details of the tribulation period. Now, chapters 12 through 14, if you're taking notes, chapters 12 through 14 are going to introduce us again. I'm sorry, not again, but he's going to enter, uh, these chapters are going to introduce us to several significant characters. Not again, because we're going to be introduced to new characters today. We're going to be introduced to this woman, a woman. We're going to be introduced to a man-child or a child, but it is a man-child. We're going to be introduced to a dragon right before the man-child. We're going to be introduced later on to Michael the Archangel. He's going to play a role in all of this. And by the way, if you look at uh, the book of Daniel, you'll find out that it is uh, Michael even then in the Old Testament and in the book of Daniel that is the prince as far as the angel over the nation of Israel. So Daniel uh, is giving us an indication that we're still dealing with Israel. And then we're we're going to be introduced to the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, and so on. So there, there are a few more characters that we're going to be introduced with in the next few chapters. This section continue, uh, continues on until chapter 15, where we see the preparation of the bold judgments, and those will begin in chapter 16. So now, for many people, chapter 12 of the book of Revelation is another difficult portion of Scripture to understand. I say for many people. And here's the thing. And we really need to take hold of this thought. If you misinterpret who is being spoken of, if you misinterpret who is being spoken of, you will miss what the Lord is saying. Well, that's obvious, right? I mean, throughout all of Scripture. You don't really want to misinterpret who is who or who is whom. For you English majors out there. You don't want to misinterpret this. You don't want to misinterpret anything. That's why we need to study the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. But in fact, this chapter, chapter 12, is key to what is happening to the Jews around the world even today. We will fully understand what is behind anti-Semitism if we understand this chapter. Some people have asked this question. What what is the best commentary to understand the signs and the symbols of Revelation chapter 12? (laughs) Well, the answer, of course, is the Scriptures themselves. The Scriptures themselves are the best commentary to understand the signs and symbols of this chapter. Now, the Lord, through His Word, is going to explain to us and for us the failure of Satan's efforts against the Jews using signs and symbols. When we first read the first five verses, it's like, whoa, another sign, a great sign. See, that word's very 
significant here because a sign means, yes, there is some symbolism now. So we have to treat it as symbolism, don't we? Remember we said most of everything in the Scriptures can be dealt with literally, and we've dealt with literals already in the book of Revelation. But now when God says, here's a sign, how many of you are here Sunday and Saturday and Sunday this weekend, and I had those signs up there posted? Some of those signs look pretty confusing. Some of you didn't come to church? Is your arm hurting? Can, can, you, can you let me know you were here? Okay, now, maybe you were asleep where you're sitting. Maybe that's what it was, and you didn't see the signs. But I had all these signs up there. And, and you know, it, it, we see signs all over the place. And sometimes we see too many signs. But when God gives us a sign, He is going to clarify through these signs. So, people have claimed that the revelation of Jesus Christ is a difficult book because of the many signs and symbols which are presumed to make the book impossible to properly interpret. Have you ever talked to someone who said, I don't really want, I don't really understand the book of Revelation. My question always is, well, have you read it? Because if you read it prayerfully, you're going to realize there are signs there that can be interpreted by the Scriptures. So if you read it, you get to see what God is saying. So think about this for a moment. Think about this. Are you ready? Are you putting on your thinking caps? Okay, All right, put on your thinking caps. Here it is. Aren't signs and symbols normally used to clarify communication? Yes. And so, ah, the use of signs and symbols in Revelation is to make certain that we don't miss the proper interpretation. Ah. So, let's interpret Scripture with Scripture. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now, a great sign, Simeon Mega. A mega sign appeared in heaven. So this is an important sign, because it's a mega sign. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. I purposely did not find some kind of a picture on the internet to show you that today. Because I think a lot of you have already seen somebody's interpretation of that particular verse. Of a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Chapter 12 is introducing us to the second half of the tribulation period by giving us, listen, by giving us a heavenly recap of the great conflict of all the ages. Before the human race was ever created in the Garden of Eden, there was a conflict between the God who created the heavens and the earth and His most powerful angel, who we now call Satan. We studied this a while back when we were in Genesis chapter 3. And and he was introduced then as the serpent. For some reason, this angel thought that he was equal to God as represented by Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. By the way, Lucifer literally means light bearer. Light bearer. And so in Isaiah 14, if you remember, these are the words of that Lucifer. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Well, these are words about him, I should have said. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. There's an interesting study, I hope to do it someday, on on the person of Lucifer here. And how the son of the morning is, is actually linked to Islamic thought. So... Hopefully we can get there one of these days. For now, let's just look at this uh, generally speaking. How you're fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart. Now, notice what he said and where he said it. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God, by the way, as we're going to learn in a moment, are, are about uh, uh, the angels. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the, mo- on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Folks, that is reference to Israel and in particular to Jerusalem. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Even today, even today, Satan thinks that he can take control of the universe from God. That's his thinking. The scriptures show that from the creation of mankind to the present, there has been an an endless conflict for the will and the soul of people to see if they would use their free moral agency, what some people call free will, what I like to call the free moral agency that God has given to every person to obey God or to follow the devil. That conflict has been between God and and the enemy. And it's been an endless one so far. For the will and the soul of men. To see if they would use that free moral agency to obey God or to follow the devil. The key verse, by the way, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Because this is after what Satan did as a serpent in tempting Eve with the fruit that God said for them not to eat. The very cause for sin in this world. We know that Genesis 3.15 says, and I, this is God speaking to the devil. This is God speaking to the serpent. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. The woman. Is it sinking in? I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, singular. Speaking of the promised Messiah, Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know where the heel is bruised, right? On the cross. Now, fast forward. Thousands of years later, John the Apostle is receiving this continued revelation of things to come in heaven, from the perspective of heaven, and specifically scenes appearing in heaven. 
So now this chapter is about great things appearing. A great sign, verse 1. A great dragon, verse 3. A great wrath that's coming up in verse 12 later on. And a great eagle that is uh, introduced in verse 14. This chapter is about great things appearing. The phrase in verse 1, as I said earlier, great sign is semeon mega or mega semeon. The word semeon is used 77 times. The word for sign is used 77 times in the New Testament. And generally it means a wonder, a miracle, a portent. But it also means an object set forth. Listen, an object set forth or action done to accredit a person or an utterance. It is something that is done to give credibility or credit to the person who is performing such a thing or saying such a thing. So an example of this would be the miracles that the Lord did in His earthly ministry. John 20 verse 30. Uh, This is one chapter away from the end of the book of John. This is after Jesus has spoken to Thomas when He tells him, Touch! Put your hand in my hand. Thomas, you didn't believe until you saw. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. And then this comes up, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, Simeon, in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So I I bring this up so that you'll understand the word semeon or, 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 or sign. It is something that gives that credit or accreditation, as it were, to the one performing or uh, bringing about the actions that are being seen. You know, when the apostles did things and and, and they were miraculous things, who did they give the glory to? To to the Lord, right? Because that's where the glory has to to go. Be careful of all those who seem to put the glory on themselves, even though sometimes there's false humility shown. But here in Revelation chapter 12, we see that this word is speaking of God's plans that are set in motion and are illustrated for us in this picture of a woman who is clothed with a sun and the moon with a garland of twelve stars around her head. Now, in verse 3, look at verse 3 if you will, we see another sign in picture form. We see a red dragon, which is in direct opposition to God's plan. So we see then something that is a great sign. And then we see another sign that is in opposition to the first sign. So let's first identify this woman. Now you remember that I was saying to you, some of you have already seen this picture. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has always taught that this woman is the Virgin Mary. And so in many of the pictures that have been drawn, uh, think of the one that was most familiar to us, La Virgen de Guadalupe. 
because we're here on the border. I mean, we all grew up with that picture on our wall if we grew up as, as Catholics. And we would look and we would see. Think about it. You see that image of a woman, the moon at her feet, clothed in sunlight, as it were, with stars around. And then, of course, there are many other virgins. It's amazing how many virgins there are. Right? The virgins of Guadalupe, the virgin and you know, uh, what is it, Lourdes, and there was, you know, they're all over the place. She just has a good wardrobe, I guess. A major wardrobe. She always changes. But it's not her. She was a sinner, folks. She was a sinner. And she said it herself. She said it herself. You know, we who are not Catholics are not here to, you know, say, we, well, we don't like Mary. No, we, we love Mary. We thank the Lord that he chose her to bring Jesus into this world. But Mary says that she rejoices in God, her Savior, which is the implication that she needs a Savior because she's a sinner. And there's only been one person who walked this earth that wasn't, and that's Jesus alone. Now, it's interesting that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, has taught that this woman is a Virgin Mary, and because of this, they sometimes, not all of them, not all Catholics do this, but some Catholics are a little more extreme than others, they will connect this vision with itself, with with the church itself, to say that because it's Mary, it's really the church. But it doesn't make sense biblically. It doesn't make sense because Mary... As we shall see, it it cannot be Mary, for she never gave birth to a child in heaven, first of all. Because that's what the vision is here. That's where she is in heaven. This is a sign, right? So we realize that it's giving us a symbolism. But then the other thing, too, is, if if it is, as the extremists would say, the Roman Catholic Church itself, how can the church give birth to its Savior? Or to its Messiah. It can't. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational. And I have to say that because some sections of the Protestant church, some sections of the Protestant church also believe that the woman is not the Roman Catholic church, but it's the church in general. Made up of all the denominations that are not Catholic. And they say, well, the woman is the church. Again, that's too far-fetched, since we know that the church does not give birth to its own Messiah. Mary Baker Eddy. How many of you have heard the name Mary Baker Eddy? Okay, more, more of you need to know a little bit more about the counterfeits to Christianity. Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of Christian science. How many of you have heard of the Christian Science Monitor? It's a newspaper. How many of you know that there is a Christian Science Church? Okay. Well, Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of this church. That's actually Mary Baker Eddy and about three or four other names because she just kept marrying other people. But anyway, that's another story. 
But what she said was that this woman was really her. So that's quite a feat. <laughs> she thought it. She she actually taught people that that woman is was her. That she was actually that woman of Revelation 12. Uh, well, I don't want to go into what I think is wrong with her, but she's dead now and gone for a long time. So biblical hermeneutics. Uh, let me let me explain the word hermeneutics because hermeneutics is really just the study of biblical interpretation. Bible hermeneutics or biblical hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the scriptures. Biblical biblical hermeneutics teaches that when the Lord uses a symbol or a sign to speak forth a truth, the first time it is used sets the standard for how it is used throughout the scriptures. So if we apply that to our study of the Word of God, we would have less of a chance of misinterpreting what the Lord is saying. And so the first place, and the only other place, by the way, where we see the sun and the moon and the twelve stars in Scripture is found in the book of Genesis. Who said Genesis? You get an A+. Genesis. Genesis. Chapter 37. <laughs> Chapter 37. In this, in this configuration, the sun, the moon, and the stars. It is when, J- when Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, tells his family about a dream. Now, he's already told them one dream that got the brothers already upset. They, were, they didn't like him already anyway. The brothers, if you remember last, last week when we were talking about you know, the sons and how, how, how Jacob lined up his, his families. First there was, uh, there was the handmaidens and, and their sons. And then there was Leah and her sons. And then there was, then there was uh, Rachel and Joseph. Right? And uh, you've you got to remember, it goes back to that, that they said, how, what's so special about this guy, Joseph? They didn't like him then. They liked him even less when he started telling them, I had a dream and I saw these sheaths and all these other sheaths were bowing down to me. And he said, and the sheaves are you guys, and I'm the one that you buy them down to. Then he has another dream, and this is where we want to pick up in verse 9 of Genesis 37. He says, and he dreams still another dream, and he told it to his brothers. And he said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. The eleven stars, well, who's the twelve? Him, Joseph. Okay, we got that down, good. So he told it to his father and his brothers. He didn't just tell it to his brothers. He told it to his father too. He told it to to Jacob. And his father rebuked him. And he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Hey! Hey! What did Jacob just do? He just interpreted the dream. You notice who he said? Because Joseph didn't interpret it. Joseph didn't tell him who the sun, the moon, and the stars were. The Holy Spirit revealed it to, jo- to Jacob. The Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Shall your mother, the moon, and I, the sun, and your brothers, those other guys, indeed come to bow down to earth before you? 
And his brothers envied him, which doesn't mean that they, oh, they envied him, they hated him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Notice the father, Jacob, kept the matter in mind. So listen, the sun, the moon, and the stars represented represented Joseph's father, mother, and brothers, which is, by the way, the whole of that is the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Joseph being the twelfth star. So the sun, the moon, and the, and the stars represent the nation of Israel. Do you see the consistency here? This is scriptural consistency. This is hermeneutic consistency. It's not one thing in Revelation and another thing in the book of Genesis. It was Jacob who saw the symbolism and interpreted it for us because of the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. So the woman of Revelation 12, naturally then, or supernaturally as the case may be, but nonetheless, the, the woman of Revelation 12 is the nation of Israel. And if there is still any doubt, would you just look at verse 5? Will you look at verse 5? Don't look at me, look at verse 5. Okay. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who bore? Was it Mary? We know that. It was the nation of Israel. Jesus came out of the nation of Israel to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Check all of the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Check all of them about Messiah. And what does He come to do? Not just to be the, the, not just to be the king over all of Israel to sit on the throne of David, but all nations will come and worship Him. Y'all, can you see that now? Y'all, y'all are seeing that. All right. So, and her child, by the way, was caught up to God and his throne. So there is no doubt who this male child is. The woman gives birth to Jesus. He is the male child who has, or who was, to rule all nations with a rod of iron and will rule all nations with a rod of iron. It tells us that where? Psalm 2. Write it down and then look it up later. Psalm 2. He was the one caught up. Listen to this. Now, he was caught up to heaven in his ascension 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. When he ascended up into heaven, Acts chapter 1. And it was through the nation of Israel that our Savior came as God and man. It was through the nation of Israel. Folks, look at verse 2 now of our text. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The woman is with child. About to give birth, in other words. Who did the nation of Israel bring forth again? Jesus, right? All right. That's not a trick question. It's, just, it's, it's one of those strengthening Questions. We're just strengthening this idea. Jesus Christ, not only the Redeemer of the nation of Israel, but of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You go back to John chapter 1, when it says, He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. But to as many as did receive Him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave He the right to become the children of God to as many as believe in His 
name. Now this can certainly be documented. It can be documented in the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and it can be documented for us in Luke chapter 3, which links Jesus to the nation of Israel. But there is no doubt that Yeshua, that was his Jewish name, Yeshua had Jewish blood. There is no doubt that he had Jewish blood. As a matter of fact, one little verse, or one portion of a verse, Hebrews seven fourteen says, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. It is evident. Now you can read before this and after this so you can see the context of it. But just this little, little phrase. It is evident that our Lord, speaking of Jesus, arose from Judah. God promised Adam and Eve that He would send a Savior into the world. That's Genesis 3.15. He would be born of a woman from the human race. As the Word of God unfolds, the Lord continually narrows down the lineage of the promised Savior. First of all, it's very broad, isn't it? Very general. He's going to be born of a woman from the human race. But then it narrows down the lineage of the promised Messiah. He chooses Abraham to establish a new nation, the nation of Israel. The Savior would be born to a descendant of Abraham. He would be born to a Jewish woman. Thus, once again, Jesus came through Israel. Now, it is interesting to note that as the woman was bringing forth this child, that she travailed in pain. She was travailing in pain. Now, Remember that during this time, the nation of Israel was under Roman rule. They wouldn't tell you that, but they knew it. They were under Roman rule. The persecution by the Romans was so intense and was one of the reasons that they were looking for the Messiah to come and to sit on the throne of David and to free them from this persecution. Now, Jesus was the one, but you know, He didn't come the first time to sit on the throne. He came the first time to save. That the world through Him might be saved. And as we shall see, this child was born under the most difficult times. The bondage of Rome was intense. You know, I don't don't think the movies we see about the birth of Jesus or or the things that we see, you know, uh, in storybooks and all of that, it doesn't give us the amazing and and, and heavy-duty pain that the Romans inflicted upon the Jewish people even during that time. But let me just say this. The force of that persecution or the force that was behind the persecution was not centered in Rome. It was not centered in Rome as we shall see now in verses 3 and 4 of our text. Because another sign appeared in heaven. This is where this persecution is centered. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. What did we say the stars of heaven were? The angels. So he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. Notice where he is. He stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Folks, the woman with child was the first wonder or sign, but the great red dragon is the second wonder. It is the second sign. Verse 9, by the way. Let's turn to verse 9, because again, remember, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. Verse 9 of this chapter says, So the great dragon was cast out, 
We will study this later, but I want you to see what it says. That serpent of old. How old? Oh, man, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That serpent of old called the devil, which means accuser, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. The angels being the third that came with him out of heaven. So it is quite significant that the world today, for the most part, does not believe in a literal devil. The world today does not. And you know what's sad? That people who call themselves Christians and they even go to church, they don't believe in a literal devil. Can I tell you, the Bible tells us there's a literal devil. He's real. Now, he's not like God. Let me just say that. He's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. And he's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent, which means he can't be, he can only be at one place at one time because he's a created being. But he has a lot of help. The third that came with him to this earth, they were thrown down here. They're the ones that are causing all the problems in our life, you know. <laughs> at least most of them. We cause some of them ourselves. But they cause a lot of them. But it's not the devil. It's not the devil made me do it. Because the devil, where is the, you, how many of you know where the devil is tonight? Satan, the serpent of old, the devil. He is there before the throne of God accusing all of us. Every one of us. That's his job. If we know that from the book of Job. We read in Job chapter 1 and 2. Well, you know, all the... Sons of God are going here and there, and Satan shows up. And what does he do? He accuses Job. So we know where he is, but everything else is being de- is demonic. It's demonic oppression. By the way, for believers in Jesus Christ, there is no possession. There's a lot of oppression. He oppresses us in a lot of ways. But he does not possess believers because believers' hearts belong to Jesus. So give thanks to God for that. The, the dragon... Now, let's get back to the symbolism because we only have just a few minutes. But the dragon, func- uh, this dragon here, functions as a sign and a wonder. Because as a dragon, it shows his character and his personality, which is this. He is to be considered as fierce, as deadly, and as wicked beyond what we know of man. And man is pretty wicked himself. But the dragon represents wickedness, it represents uh, 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 death, and it represents fierceness. The color red, the reason it is, it is symbolically red here, is because he is the motivating force behind much of the bloodshed of human history, and certainly the one that is, uh, in, in, uh, has the... the re- you know, he is the, the main reason for the death of all the Jews that have died all, all these years. But in human history, he's, he's the cause of all bloodshed in essence. Man against man. Stirred up by Satan himself. Jesus called Satan a murderer from the very beginning, didn't he? John chapter 8, verse 44. I'm just going to give you a portion of that verse because it's a real long verse. It goes on beyond this. But I just want to give you the portion that where Jesus says, You are of your Father. Speaking actually to, to unbelievers and speaking to, to religious people. He says, You are of your Father the devil and the desires of your Father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He was a murderer from the beginning. So, you know, he's the one that killed us. That's why we were born spiritually dead. He killed us. He killed all of man. The seven heads of the dragon speak of his complete and wide-ranging uh, intellect and clever, uh, cleverness. His, his intellect is quite, quite good. He's not, he's not omniscient like God. God is all-knowing. Uh, Satan tries to be, but he's not. But he knows a lot. He really does. He knows a lot. Uh, the ten horns represent uh, strength. That Later, it will represent ten kingdoms. But when we get to the chapter, uh, I think it's, well, it's chapter 17. When we get to chapter 17, we'll, we'll look more closely at the description of the heads and the horns and the diadems. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week as well. Uh, that refer to Satan's, what, what they do is refer to Satan's past and to Satan's future attempts to rule the kingdoms of the earth. Now, as, verse, as for verse 4, if you go back to verse 4 in your Bibles, the stars of heaven, as I mentioned, refer to the Old Testament designation for angels. When Satan fell into sin, he took with him one-third of the angels of heaven. So the phrase, threw them to the earth, means that Satan and his fallen angels operate on the earth against the human race and, in essence, against all of God's good creation. They work constantly against the things of God. Now, the grotesque imagery of the devil standing before the woman seeking to devour her child is symbolic here. The, the, the picture actually in the, in the original language is, is almost like, you know, she's ready to give birth and he's right there. With his teeth in his mouth, it just opened wide red. I mean, that's how, that's how, how grotesque the image is. It is a symbolic summary of Satan's continual interference with the birth of the promised Messiah and Savior. You know when his interference began? It began when Cain killed Abel. His interference began when Cain killed Abel. And do you know that the scriptures tell us that Cain belonged to the wicked one? Let's look at it. First John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now, first of all, this is a statement that John makes for us. This is a good statement. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Folks, let's really take that to heart, that we should love one another. But then notice what he says. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Do you see that? Not as Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. But his works were evil. Why were they evil? Because he was of the wicked one. And then Satan tried to pollute the human race and its offspring. Do you remember this little thing in Genesis 6 verses 4 and 5? There, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Boy, we went through a long explanation of that back in Genesis chapter 6. If you can, if you want to listen to it, you've got to get a CD on that one because that takes too long. We don't have that much time. 
So when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, I mean, this is, this is supposed to be spiritual beings or spiritual entities with, with women. Well, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. That's not, you know, it sounds better than it really is. But that's what he was doing. He was polluting the human race. Again, why? Because he knew that, say, that, that uh, the Savior of the world was going to come through a woman. So listen, here's a quick wrap-up. Are you ready? At the birth of Moses, Pharaoh ordered the death of all male children born to Jewish women. During the days of David, King Saul and others tried to kill David, through whom the Savior was promised to come. The book of Esther records the attempts of a man named Haman, who sought to exterminate the Jewish race. When Jesus was born... Herod issued a decree to slaughter Jewish babies. Through Jesus' earthly ministry, how many times did people try to kill Jesus? In 70 AD, this is now after Jesus has risen from the dead and and has ascended. But now see how this carries on. In 70 AD, the Romans who sieged and sacked Jerusalem killed over a million Jews. A million Jews. Another half million Jews were killed in 132 A.D. after the failed Bar Kokhba revolt. In 1298 A.D., 100,000 Jews were killed in Austria, Bavaria, and in an area that was called Franconia. And we should all know that 6 million Jews were killed by Hitler during World War II. But despite all of the devil's diabolical designs to devour Jesus, he was born through Israel. Merry Christmas. He was born. Wasn't devoured. In verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and His throne. No matter what Satan has tried to do, Jesus has always been victorious. And let's remember this. Let's not be fooled. Whoops. That's not the one I wanted. That one. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. All right. That's what we need to understand. Part of the problem during the time of the Holocaust was that it was easy for Hitler and all who followed him to convince the German people, for the most part, but to convince them that the Jews killed Jesus and for that they should be punished. But we know better, don't we? It wasn't just the Jews who took him to the cross by chain, placing the weight of a of a crossbeam on his back. Who did that? The Jews? The Romans. The Romans did. Who laid into his back 
with the whips that had glass and shards of glass and, and metal on the ends of those leather straps. Those are the Romans. They had fun doing it, by the way. When we go to a section of, of, of Jerusalem, the old city on the, on the path that Jesus took to the cross, we stop and, uh, in this place where they've excavated the street of, of Jerusalem. You have to go down into this, into this area where you see the games that they would play. They used those games when they put a cover over Jesus' head and began to beat him. And they would say to him, if you're the Son of God, then tell, tell us who hit you. And the way that they got the opportunity to hit him is that they played this game on the street. It's pretty wicked, isn't it? In just, in just doing the Jews a favor, because the Jews didn't want to get their hands dirty. And Pontius Pilate already washed his hands and says, it's out of my hands. But all along, where was the center of all of that hatred and animosity? It was the devil. But you see, when Jesus died on the cross... That wasn't defeat. That was victory. Because he said, unless the Son of God be lifted up, unless he be lifted up, there would be no salvation. There would be no healing. When I shall be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He meant lifted up on the cross. That's not defeat. That's victory. That's not Satan devouring Jesus. That's Jesus putting an end to Satan. In effect, it's going to come. What we've experienced over the last 2,000 years is the opportunity to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ dying for their sins so that they will have eternal life by receiving the truth, by accepting the truth and receiving Christ. That's why our salvation is so important. That's why us knowing why we're saved is so important. That's why this chapter is so important because Israel is back in the land. If Israel wasn't in the land... We could have our doubts as to whether, you know, the end is going to happen the way the Bible says. Then we have to question the Bible. We don't have to question the Bible. Everything has come to pass. And when you walk the land of Israel, and I would hope that many of you get that opportunity. I've been giving you one for I don't know how long. You still can go if you want to go in March. But when you walk the land, you realize, man, Jesus is coming. When you see the things you see, the Bible is true. It is accurate. It is reliable. It is God's Word. And you need to know it. And you need to thank God for it. Because it is life. The Word of God is life. It is food. It is milk. It is meat. It is bread. It is everything that we need 
Let's not make light of that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you.